This is Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Each episode, we explore the human dimensions of climate change with some of the leading experts at the University of Colorado and beyond. I'm Jake Fox. I'm Cameron Nicewander. We're your hosts for the show. It is our goal to help you, our listeners, learn about the health consequences of global warming. And ask you to get involved in personal and political efforts to slow climate change. As always, please check out our webpage, cuconsortium.org slash podcast, for episode summaries, show notes, and our comment box. Without further ado, on to the show. And this long line of cars is all because of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attention Humans. Today, we have the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Beth Carlton. Dr. Carlton has a PhD in environmental health science from UC Berkeley, MPH from Columbia University. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the Colorado School of Public Health, a recent recipient of several grants to study infectious diseases as well as climate change, and a member of the University of Colorado Consortium on Climate Change and Health. Dr. Carlton, thanks for being here today. Uh, First thing, did we miss anything important in your biography? Thanks for having me, you guys. Um, No, the only other thing I'd add is I had the pleasure of working with you guys last semester in the um, climate change and health course that I taught. Fantastic. Cam's slipping her $10 bill under the table right now. You can edit that out as (laughs) needed. She's lying on the record already. That's good. Um, Dr. Carlton, we like to start uh, these interviews. When it comes to climate change, how much trouble are we in? (laughs) It's a complicated question. Um, There are certainly those who would point the very doomsday scenario um, that we are on a trajectory um, headed into very unknown territory um, in terms of health and infrastructure and um, experiences um, kind of beyond what the human population has experienced. Um, I think that... um, Portrait is not wrong, um, but I think it's also important to remember that the um, human population has been remarkably able to respond at times of crises. Awesome. Thank you. And so, Dr. Carlton, we usually just jump right in. So how is your work and research relevant to the intersection between climate change and health? So uh, I got into this field because I've always been interested in the ways in which environments shape um, infectious diseases. Um, So everything to how you manage a watershed, um, how that might affect um, the distribution of diarrheal disease in a community, um, uh, to doing work on neglected tropical diseases and the way in which agriculture or land use can affect those. Um, I'm really interested in the ways in which climate change may affect diarrheal disease distribution. Diarrheal disease is one of the leading killers of children under the age of five globally. Um, and so I look at the ways in which rainfall and drought um, and high temperatures might change the distribution of pathogens or may compromise infrastructure, and also the ways in which investments in water and sanitation or vaccination strategies can help to reduce those impacts. I, I love the phrase uh, neglected tropical diseases because it, you know, it implies that we are from a position of privilege here, we don't have to worry about a lot of these things. Um, do you see that changing uh, for the United States as we progress with climate change? So you could see with the Zika outbreak that happened a few years ago, there was an enormous amount of fear in the U.S. about um, the introduction of Zika uh, and potentially dengue into the U.S. Dengue is now um, uh, present in parts of the U.S. episodically. Um, So there is 
the potential for pathogens that we don't currently see in the U.S. to either arrive or become more widely distributed here. Lyme disease certainly has expanded its range tremendously over the past few decades, and this is often um, can be due to a combination of factors, including climate change being one of them. Um, so changes in how we um, interact with um, uh, the landscape, like for, for Lyme disease, what matters a lot is having this kind of human rural interface. Um, so suburbs pressing up against, um, you know, deer and, um, deer tick habitat. There is potential here. Certainly the populations facing the greatest risks for neglected tropical diseases and diarrheal illnesses as it relates to climate change are those in the places where they are currently present. Um, the Lancet put out a report uh, a couple of years ago and described climate change as one of the greatest public health opportunities of our time, um, and it does provide an opportunity to address some of these major health problems in a, in a systematic way. Absolutely. And, and health inequities, I think, around the yes. world. Yes. Um, because these are, from my understanding, you know, less economically well-off communities Yeah. You know, climate change, if you think about it as a risk multiplier, um, it's going to exacerbate um, kind of risks that are already present in our um, communities and across the globe so that, you know, the, the most vulnerable become more vulnerable. You gave us a brief overview of climate change and diarrheal diseases. Can we explore that a little bit more? Sure. So how does climate change affect diarrheal disease? It's a good question. Um, there's a few different ways we think um, uh, climate change may impact diarrheal diseases. Um One is that at higher temperatures, um, pathogens may just be more able to grow up to a certain threshold. So if you think of a bacterial pathogen in water, um, at slightly warmer temperatures, the pathogen may um, do better. At a high enough temperature, the pathogen may not survive, right? Um, With heavy rainfall events, um, there's the potential for heavy rainfall to mobilize pathogens into um, drinking water sources. This is much more common in places that don't have clean drinking water access. One of the interesting things like early on is it's very clear there's a relationship between temperature and diarrheal illness. So as it gets warmer, there's an uptick in diarrheal illness. in, in mostly in low and middle income countries uh, where there is more burden of diarrheal disease. Um, so initially people said, well, we can just vaccinate our way out of this because there's a vaccine now for rotavirus, which is a fantastic vaccine, is present, preventing large amounts of illness um, and mortality in children. Um, but rotavirus actually is inversely related to temperature. So you see more rotavirus in the winter and less motor- rotavirus in warmer temperature. So that our, that Actually, when we talk about diarrheal illness and climate change, um, it matters what pathogens you're talking about. Um, so in general, the bacterial pathogens are positively associated with temperature, and the viruses, like rotavirus, are negatively associated. And if we only have vaccines for the virus, we're not... We actually should still use those vaccines because they'll help health, but they're not as useful as a climate um, adaptation strategy. Yeah, and so with, with climate change, the concern is more on the bacterial pathogens... That's what we think. We don't have a lot of evidence on the protozoan like Giardia um, and Cryptosporidium, but there is some evidence to suggest they're also positively associated with temperature. Um, and then rainfall, it, it it looks like rainfall and flooding is associated with um, diarrheal illness, and we think the most hazardous rainfall is the rainfall that occurs right after a dry period, to, which, to be gross, um, we think dry periods allow a fecal film to build up on the landscape, um, and so when rainfall occurs, it flushes all the pathogens into a water source. Um, 
But what are the other ways in which climate change can potentially affect our real diseases by, is by wiping out infrastructure. So if you have an extreme weather event um, and a storm takes off, uh, takes a water treatment plant offline, all of a sudden you have sewage that's untreated and what are you going to do with that? And that creates, creates a potential for exposure. So it's both this direct effect on the organism and how it's distributed and also on all these interventions we have to reduce our exposure to these organisms that could be compromised. So it sounds like it, it, then it can affect those more developed regions that do have these systems that are then vulnerable to extreme weather events or flooding, for example. Yeah, and you know, one of the really interesting things that we haven't done a lot of work on, but it, it's interesting to think about is that in places like Colorado, where we have a pretty fantastic drinking water system, if there's a boil water advisory, none of us are really used to having to boil our water and handle the fact that we don't have safe drinking water. Whereas if you go someplace else that doesn't have regular access to safe drinking water, you know those communities in some ways know how to deal with unsafe drinking water because they deal with it every day. Um, so, um, you know, there, there are potential for us to face situations we're not as comfortable dealing with. Yeah, a little, a little more unprepared from that standpoint. Uh, when we think about rain and precipitation in the context of climate change, can you help guide us through how those projections are slated for the future? Yeah, so rain is a lot trickier to talk about than temperature when we talk about climate change. So temperature in general, you know, we, we can... Um, describe it as increasing over time. Um, rainfall in general, we think that the wet areas will probably get wetter and the dry areas will probably get drier. Um, there are areas of greater uncertainty in Colorado being one of those where we're kind of, you know, part of the Southwest, which is probably going to become drier, but we also have the plains, which may become wetter and it's unclear where, what our experience is going to be in Colorado in the future. Um, what we also are fairly confident about is that when rain does fall, it'll fall in more extreme concentrated events. And this is a problem for a few reasons. One, when rain falls all at once, it's harder for the ground to absorb the rain quickly. So there's a lot more runoff. Um, and to these really heavy rainfall events that happen, um, can damage or compromise infrastructure. Wow. So we saw this in Colorado not too long ago. Are we at risk for certain diarrheal diseases as climate change progresses in this state? You know, it's a good question. I My answer to this used to be probably not, um, although there's been some recent work coming out of um, the U.S. showing that um, areas that have combined sewage and stormwater systems um, during heavy rainfall events where there is an, uh, where the sewer treatment plant goes offline because the, it can't handle the capacity, um, that there is an increase in gastrointestinal illness. So I think increasingly our answer is possibly, um, maybe not at this kind of wide-scale, massive disease outbreak scale. I, I think it's unlikely we're going to see a cholera outbreak in the U.S. anytime soon. Um, but it's possible if events like the 2013 floods happen um, in Colorado again, you know, there will be an uptick in, in gastrointestinal illness. Uh, who is most at risk for contracting these diseases? So um, diarrheal diseases generally affect the very young, so children under five, um, and the very old elderly populations. Um, and so those are the populations we think are most at risk. Dr. Carlton, you mentioned a few infrastructural factors that might play into a community's risk for, for um, contracting these climate-related diarrheal diseases. What can we do to protect ourselves from them from a societal standpoint? So... 
one of the interesting things and uh, about diarrheal diseases, and I think one of the reasons that I was drawn to working on this topic, is that we actually have a lot of tools at disposal to prevent diarrheal diseases. So, for example, we can vaccinate people to pretend, prevent rotavirus. Um, we know that water, sanitation, and hand washing are um, amazing tools at reducing diarrheal illness, keeping um, at the most crude level, you know, the rule is don't eat poop, right? And so the combination of sanitation, one of the greatest um, developments of the um, 19th and 20th century, um, and um, clean drinking water and hand wash washing can go a long way to preventing people from getting sick. Um, there are also other measures like promotion of breastfeeding, which can both boost a child's immunity and prevent that child from being exposed to contaminated drinking water because no one's having to mix formula for the child. So there's a whole bunch of tools in our toolkit. And in fact, the U.S. You know, is has um, does a remarkably good job of preventing us, frankly, from eating poop um, by having great um, water um, and sewage treatment uh, programs in, in a lot of areas in the U.S. There are populations in the U.S. that don't have regular access to, to safe drinking water, and that's a, those are the populations we probably are going to be most worried about. Can I ask briefly, what are those populations? So, for example, down in the Navajo Nation, um, there uh, is an area in the Bennett Free Zone around Tuba City where about, I, I think the statistics is about a third of the population does not have access to drinking water. They haul water. Um, so it means they go someplace um, and collect water and bring it back to their home. And what we know is that every time someone has to transport water to their home, they're going to use less of it, which means um, they're, you know, every time you want to think about using water, you're going to think about the fact that mom or dad or grandma or someone has to go drive the truck or um, go collect water someplace else. So is this water really use, worth using to clean my boots or, you know, um, hand wash after I've only touched things that aren't that dirty or other things. I think it's just another fantastic example of climate change um, as this risk modifier, as this threat amplifier, and that these, these communities that are already at risk from environmental factors are going to be more at risk faster in the context of climate change. From more of a broad standpoint, what can we do to address climate change on a higher level? This is, a, I mean, I think this is the question of the century, right? Um, traditionally, the public health field, um, and particularly people in global health, have, have focused, to the extent they focused on climate change, have focused on the adaptation side of things. So how can we understand who is going to be most vulnerable and what can we do to reduce their vulnerability in a changing climate? So it's not so much dealing with the emissions um, and preventing emissions, but if we accept that climate change is happening, how can we reduce? What are the levers we can pull to reduce the risk of a community? So, for example, um, uh, protecting water and sanitation infrastructure and building it in a way that's robust to extreme weather events um, would be an adaptation measure. Um, what I haven't been involved in, um, and in general, the public health community, although there are certainly outliers, is on the mitigation side of things. So what can we do to reduce emissions and actually go as far upstream as possible and, and prevent climate change? Um, and I think that's something that um, we're really grappling with now is, is what are the um, the interventions that could um, reduce um, emissions in a way that um, 
to prevent climate from becoming as extreme as, as it could potentially be under the current situation. One of the interesting things that the public health community is doing or um, is trying to look at what's called um, co-benefits of um, climate health co-benefits. So if um, you adopt a climate mitigation strategy, let's say like increasing um, the use of electric vehicles, then all of a sudden you can say, well, not only will that reduce emissions contributing to climate change, but that could also reduce particulate matter emissions from tailpipes because the tailpipe emissions won't be happening anymore. And what are all the health co-benefits that could accompany this policy change? What are the things not directly related to reducing carbon, but every, if we look at everything else? Um, and you can also talk about disbenefits. There are probably policies that may have negative health consequences, but there are a number of mitigation policies that have the potential to um, impact public health in a positive way beyond climate change, such as reducing asthma hospitalizations due to tail, tailpipe emissions or other things. Yeah, so it seems like... Um kind of in, in the work that we've done putting this podcast together, there are a lot of changes that we can make for climate change um, that have an effect in the future that will help prevent emissions, help reduce the, the um, amount of, of essentially global warming that we see down the road. But a lot of these changes seem to have benefit right from the time of the change as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I think these co-benefits are so interesting to think about because you're right, the payoff for reducing emissions in terms of climate potential is is long term. And it's sometimes hard to think over, you know, decade scale in terms of benefits. Um, but the co-benefits um, can happen almost immediately. Um, and, and that's a real um plus and, and worth considering when evaluating um, climate mitigation policies. I mean, who doesn't want to reduce asthma in their community or reduce obesity rates or whatever whatever the target might be? So, Dr. Carlton, thanks for giving that overview. We're putting together this podcast for, um, you know, it's available to the public. So we might have a student at CU Boulder, a layperson, my mom listening to this. What advice do you have for our listeners to act on climate change? I don't have a lot of advice about it, but I will say that that climate change is often framed, unfortunately, in our in um, the general public as this highly political issue, and I don't think that needs to be the way we talk about it. The science of climate change is is real. There's not much room for debate as to, in terms of whether climate change is happening, um, and I think all of us share this desire to have. Um, you know, a future that is um, safe and hospitable for our children and our grandchildren. Um, so, you know, talk about it and become informed about it. Listen to this podcast. Um, and um, don't be afraid to ask questions if there are parts of um, this that you don't understand. Don't let people shut down discussion if you want to talk about this issue and um, and become more informed on this issue. Um, I, I think... There, um, there are incredible opportunities here, um, and I think the more we can bring this topic out in the open and have kind of open, constructive dialogue about it, the more we can move the needle towards greater health for the population in the long term and the short term. Yeah, so uh, kind of butting off of that, uh, how do we train the next generation of scientists or health professionals or really just professionals in general to get involved with climate change? 
You know, I feel like your question should be, how do we train the older generation to listen to the younger generation um, and and kind of channel their interest in climate change and health? I, I really see the um, younger generation is sh- showing up at places like the Colorado School of Public Health, incredibly interested in issues of climate change and health and us trying to figure out how to channel that energy. And I, I feel like the more we can let people like, you two run with these ideas and figure out what we should do um, to increase education awareness, the better. Um, that the solution may not come from the top, but rather from the um, students. You could say the bottom, too. I didn't want to call you guys the bottom. Also, you touched on uh, vaccines and breastfeeding. Are there any other contentious issues you want to... <laughs> so, um... Dr. Carlton, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we've really appreciated the perspective that you brought, um, as well as the expertise in the diarrheal disease. Um, is there anything you'd like to add for our listeners? Um, thank you guys for having me. It's been really a pleasure. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you so much. For our listeners, that is it for this episode of Attention Humans. Please check out the website for our show notes. Otherwise, we hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. We unpack the human health dimensions of climate change and emphasize the urgent need for all of us to get involved. We want to thank Dr. Rosemary Rochford and Dr. C.C. Sorensen for their mentorship on this project. Ellen McFarlane and Matt Cook for technical support. Cake for the jam and theme music. Our awesome guests for sharing their expertise. And you, our listeners, for paying attention. See you next time.